Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hey, everybody. It's been a while. I missed you guys. been a gallivanting around Thailand for a little bit. It's been quite the adventure so far. Um, I've had an episode to post for a while, but just wasn't really able to find the time and just trying to intuitively pursue in my life uh, what's in front of me. And if the podcast didn't get recorded one day, it didn't get recorded. And not to mention, I figured all of you were busy with your holiday festivities or your escaping of holiday festivities, which has been my MO for the past few years. I've uh, intentionally opted out, which continues to feel like a very positive and aligned experience. It was very difficult for me to take that initial step of opting out, but I feel really good about it now and sort of creating celebrations and rituals in a more intentional way instead of just folding myself into some sort of cultural, sorry, fighting a bit of a cough slash cold thing here. Um, But instead of sort of just folding myself into some sort of cultural expectation, it's felt uh, really good to, to be a bit more intentional about that and think about what types of celebrations or gatherings or um, yeah, just what type of rituals I want to participate in in my own life and thinking about how some of them are superficial. You know, I don't want to just get together with a group of people on a specific day because someone somewhere along the line decided that's what we're supposed to do. I really want to create meaningful connections with people and have meaningful experiences. And sometimes what that means is starting from square one and creating them yourself. Um, So anyway, long-winded explanation, but just been sort of bopping around uh, Thailand, northern Thailand so far. We're going to go down to southern Thailand uh, in a week or so after a quick visa run to Burma, uh, which I'm very excited about. Um, But I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to talk to you guys again, even though I can't really talk. It's a struggle. I recorded an episode with someone today um, that'll be posting next week, probably. Um, But I was like, I'm going to do this anyway, even though I'm coughing and choking. Got to get back. It feels good. I feel endlessly grateful still um, for just how much this podcast 
and these conversations that I have feels integrated into my own experience and my own growth. Um, it feels sort of weird to like be putting and projecting my own like inner journey into such a public platform. Um, I know it's helpful for you guys too, but it's so immensely personal for me. The, the conversations that I pursue and then the conversations that I have are so intertwined with, you know, both purposefully and, and, um, by accident, uh, become so intertwined with what I'm dealing with and exploring or going through or questioning. Um, which is amazing because it's a thing that I sort of get to do in the world that feels just really, um, personal and authentic, which I feel like keeps me going, but it's a strange thing. It's sort of like having public therapy, I guess, which we probably need a lot more of, but <clears throat> I know I've sort of repeated myself about this on various episodes, but I still, I just feel really grateful that I was sort of able to settle into something that is both collective and personal. Um, I'm going to try not to talk that much on this intro. I have a lot to say. Uh, maybe I'll save it for, um, next week when I have more of a voice, but one quick thought, not totally related to the conversation, um, that you're about to hear today with Akshay about fear, which I'm really excited to share with you guys. Fear has definitely been something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, um, and, uh, but anyway, a little bit unrelated to that, I wanted to just sort of pose a question <clears throat> to all of you and also to myself, uh, in response to, I mean, everything's totally blowing up right now, politically, environmentally, etc. but specifically environmentally, <clears throat> the fires in Australia and, and thinking even about the term natural disaster, like our human framing of natural planetary events is interesting to me. Um, clearly as humans, we've done a lot to fuck up the planet. And so in some way what's happening to the earth was provoked by us. At least that's what I believe based on the science that I've read. Um, <clears throat> but there's a lot of things that aren't right. Tsunamis, uh, earthquakes, climate change is not provoking those. Um, climate change may have played a role in the fires that are happening in Australia, but certainly there are many, many, many disasters that humans didn't create that are just natural to the, to the earth. And, <clears throat> you know, I think they're only disasters because of the way that we've decided to construct our lives and the way that civilization is constructed. You know, in, in prehistory, we used to live in accordance with the land. We used to live in partnership with the land. We didn't assume superiority over the land like we do now. And, and this sort of like hurried response of donations and um, horror and, oh my God, like how could this happen? To me, it's a bit bizarre and, and feels like Yes, of course, we want to protect people and protect wildlife and protect the earth. But the fact of the matter is, like, we've been preventing a lot of wildfires that need to happen. And part of that prevention is that we don't want them to build, to burn down land that we've built houses on. Which shouldn't really be there. <laughs> we should be living in, you know, villages that are a lot more mobile. 
we shouldn't be hoarding so many belongings that when earth takes its natural course, that our lives are devastated. You know, I, I obviously assuming superiority or that humans have the power or control to manipulate the earth is how we got started in all of this anyway. And to assume that we can stop what's going on is just really naive, I think. <clears throat> and I just wish the reactions to some of these events was more strategic. You know, why are we rebuilding homes on land that's going to flood again? Why aren't we adapting? Why aren't we listening? Why are we so quick to avoid the grief of the fact that our planet's dying? I mean, I guess I know why, but it sucks. And I feel like a lot of really smart people with very public platforms are projecting this idea that we can and should rebuild. I think we need to like tear everything down and start from square one and think about how we can do this differently. I mean, even that's if that's creating some sort of like social infrastructure that accommodates for the environment, like as has happened in Rotterdam, for example, where, um, or many parts of the Netherlands that are very prone to flooding, instead of trying to keep the water out, what if we build uh, spaces and architecture in a way that works with the environment so when it floods, there's spaces for the water to go and that space can be used as some sort of like community gathering spot whether or not there's water there. <clears throat> and if forests are meant to burn, which they are, why are we preventing that? And isn't preventing that... You know, we were in Canada this summer and there's a, a pine beetle infestation I mean, part of the reason there's an infestation is because there's a monocrop of these trees, so a problem we created. And I just look at this and I think, this shit needs to burn. <laughs> you know, that's the most practical, strategic response, I think, to what's happened. And if that means that some wildlife is killed or homes are destroyed... To me, it's honestly a small price to pay for the bigger problem that is our dying planet. Like, how can we live differently? How can we live... How can we reduce our consumption? How can we reduce the number of belongings that we have? How can we reduce our impact on the planet? How can we live in accordance with nature? Because nature's going to win... You know, it's either going to win or we're just going to become extinct from our own bullshit. <laughs> we're going to provoke our own extinction, um, either through planetary means or something else. Like a war with Iran. <clears throat> um, I don't know. I, I was just honestly thinking about this. I took a car home from recording the podcast and just took down a few notes. I didn't really plan on talking about this on the podcast, but... I figured why not. So apologies if these thoughts aren't well put together, but it's like, I feel sort of guilty for <laughs> having this opinion about it. Like, Oh, let's donate money to this and let's do this and let's protect this and pray for this. And like this shit's happening, whether we want it to or not. And I just wish we could take a more proactive approach in regard to 
how can we be less vulnerable? And maybe being less vulnerable means, means understanding that we are vulnerable. Understanding that the civilized life that we've created does not work with the planet in any way. <clears throat> it drains resources. It provokes quote-unquote natural disasters. And it doesn't accommodate for the unknown that is the reality of a planet. I just wish we could think about this in a little bit more of a of an evolved sort of strategic way. <clears throat> so that's what I'm going to do. That's what I hope at least some people are doing. And I hope that you don't feel badly about thinking a little critically of the sort of status quo mainstream reaction to these types of things. Some of these things are detrimental and things that we created, but they're not disasters. They're <clears throat> a point of life. It's like trying to prevent death. It's going to happen whether we want it to or not. Controlling it or assume that we assuming that we can is supremely naive and not helpful at all. Um, so anyway, maybe trying to work this into our podcast, my podcast that you're going to hear today, my conversation that you're going to hear today is about not being so fearful or at the very least being okay with fear, being okay with fearing that we don't have control over the planet, being okay with not knowing, being okay with being vulnerable, because it is scary. It is scary to think that we're not the top of the food chain. I mean, I think that's what a lesson so many of us need to learn is that we don't have control and trying to find it and hold on to it is not a practical use of our time. So I'm trying to embrace fear in my life in many different ways, in ways that I definitely didn't before. Uh, Aaron and I have talked a lot about fear on our podcast, Horror Rapport, which if you haven't checked it out, highly recommend Horror Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. Um, and listening to this conversation today with Akshay, it addresses fear in, in, in a way that I haven't uh, talked about it a lot on the podcast, but which I'm excited to share with you. Um, anyway, I'm struggling between wanting to say so much and also like physically not being able to talk because I'm joking. So I should probably just stop, but definitely want to think more about the way that we react to disasters and the way that we embrace surrender and being out of control and the way that we embody fear in a way that can be beneficial and practical. So on that note, it's good to be back. Even though I'm sitting in a room with a microphone, it still feels like I'm back with you guys. Um, I hope you enjoy today's episode and catch you on the other end. Um, cool. Well, I am here with Akshay. Is that how you pronounce it? Akshay, yes. Akshay, <laughs> awesome. Um, and we've been trying to make this podcast happen for quite some time, so I'm really happy to do it, even though I am slightly delirious in Thailand. <laughs> So I, I'd love it if you could, I've uh, read the vast majority of your book, was like really oh, cool. super into it. Um, I'm very much into fear and I talk a lot about it, probably mm. in a different context um, than you, we'll talk about it here today. But I sort of see fear as like, I don't know, almost like a form of psychedelics in a way. Like it's just like a path to 
I think, learning so much about ourselves and getting answers. Um, so I was super into reading your book and hearing about you, but I'd love if you could kind of give the listeners an overview of what the book is about. Um, sure. And uh, we can sort of jump off from there. Sure. Yeah. So the book is called Fearvana. And the idea is that these two seemingly contradictory concepts, right? Like fear and nirvana that are often perceived as opposites. Fear is this primal emotion. It's demonized. The word itself conjures up something negative and nirvana is bliss, enlightenment. And by molding the two, the, the realization that I've come to live through, I mean, to come to learn through a lot of life experience, a lot of research in neuroscience, psychology, spirituality is that fear is actually an access point to bliss and enlightenment. It's not, it's not the opposite, but they're actually very complementary. And the idea of the book is to help people transform their relationship to not just fear, but any kind of struggle. So fear, stress, anxiety, any kind of suffering, and ultimately developing a positive relationship to it so they can live their bliss, so they can experience bliss, or as I like to say, so they can find, live, and love their worthy struggle. So I call it your worthy struggle. I don't like that term, follow your passion, because it often conveys the idea that if I, first, there's many things wrong with it, but one idea that my beef with it, my biggest one is that when people say follow your passion, it conveys this idea that if you do, that you'll never have to work a day in your life and life will be, you know, sunshine, rainbows, and unicorns, but it's not, it will be hard. And that's not a bad thing. So I call it your worthy struggle. And the book is designed to help people find it, live it, and love that worthy struggle. Yeah. And I, so your relationship with fear, like bring me back was what, at what point did you sort of have this realization around fear being an access point to something? Was it always like that? Did you have a negative relationship no. with fear in the past or? I was like, when I was a kid, I was terrified of everything. I mean, Ferris wheels, not even like a roller coaster. I was scared of Ferris wheels, which is ridiculous and absurd, right? But I was scared of everything. And I actually, so it, it was a slow process. By no means is it I'm, like today, you know, I do everything, mountain climb, skydive. I've done, you know, skied across ice caps, served in a war zone, been in the Marines. But it was, so it was actually first joining the Marines that really taught me the beauty in engaging fear, in engaging struggle. Because obviously Marine training is tough, right? Because you do a lot of scary things, a lot of things that are miserable. But I started to find the beauty in adversity. But like, and actually, even if I'm looking back before that, when I was about 13 years old, I went bungee jumping in New Zealand. And that was my first stepping stone into experiencing fear. And then joining the Marines is where it kind of really took it to the next level. Because as soon as I joined the Marines, I had just come out of drugs too. So I started looking for other ways to sort of find that high. I went mountain climbing, skydiving, cave diving, ice climbing, ice caving, you know, like you name it. And uh, looking for other ways to engage fear and challenge myself. So in terms of the transition into like engaging in these sort of fearful activities and doing yeah. drugs, I mean, I would imagine or at least maybe common perception at least is that sort of doing these really sort of crazy things like skydiving or, you know, free solo climbing, um, yeah. that it is about sort of achieving this high that may or may not be seen as like positive, right. That it's like an escape rather than, um, can you sort of speak to the difference between those things? Um, and, and sure. for you, when you, were doing drugs, like, was that, do you see them as sort of one in the same that initially when you started, started doing these activities that you were trying to achieve the same thing. And then you like got to a different place. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So to some degree, I was seeking a high that I had now replaced from drugs. Cause even when I was doing drugs, I like looking back now on my life that I was always the kind of person looking to pursue everything at its most extreme. So I was the, me and one other guy were the first person in our group and during high school to start going into harder stuff. 
and he's no longer alive today. He ended up going into much harder stuff, OD'd. And that could have easily been me because I was that person, right? So initially, when I, when I joined the Marines, I was looking to replace that, like, right, looking for, and again, uh, arguably a more, po- I mean, I would say definitely not, not arguably more positive high, but arguably like it can get too dangerous, like free soloing and stuff like that, right? Because I did do some of that. But it was a much more positive way to experience it. But only recently, especially after coming back from Iraq, I realized that sometimes even the positive things you do can just be a way to run away from yourself. You know, whether it be skydiving. I mean, like when I came back, I spent a month dragging a 190-pound sled for 350 miles across Iraq, I mean, across, Iraq, across Greenland. And that was just a way to go back into intense environments where my life was on the line, where life is simpler. I was just running away from my demons, running away from the mundane and looking for as many outlets as possible to run away from all of it. And now I, I do the same things. Like I still go skydiving. I still, I, I'm an ultra runner. I still do quote unquote extreme sports, but I do it from a very different level of consciousness. It's not about running away anymore. Right. Cause I've also learned to practice and embrace stillness in a much deeper way than I did back then. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? So like what, when you go into doing these activities, like intention wise, are you like, what does it feel like? Because I think a lot of people, like people have, I haven't done nearly the amount of crazy shit that you have, but, <laughs> but I, I have done things in my life that I think people have often said to me like, oh, you're so brave. And I, I often think back on it and think like, it's sort of a funny comment because one, I felt like in many of those situations, I had no choice. It was like, it felt mm. like death or evolve it was like one or the other like running away from a lion or something um but secondly i think people say something like that like you're so brave which i'm sure you've gotten a million times and they assume that bravery or courage is the absence of fear like they're waiting right for the time so like what does that look like to you to like move toward the fear and embrace it sort of like on a mental level but just on like a cellular level yeah Um, no and you're and you're so true like i mean when i do talks people often are like how are you so fearless because they the assumption is by doing these things i'm fearless and i'm not i'm terrified of most things i mean i was horribly scared when i went skydiving rock climbing caving i used to be very claustrophobic and squeezing into very tight spaces is nerve-wracking going cave diving cave diving is considered one of the most dangerous sports in the world you're scuba diving into tight spaces again terrifying I do these things now because I recognize that the ev- like evolution, spiritual awakening cannot happen in comfort. It cannot happen when you're nestled into your, into your little safety bubble. It only happens in the experience of pain, in the experience of suffering, in the experience of fear, in the experience of stress. Human beings are creatures of adaptation, right? We put ourselves in these scenarios and we adapt. I mean, just like you said, when you in these scenarios where you were forced to essentially be brave, right? And so putting yourself in scenarios like that forces you to engage something within that you have to rise above the circumstance to keep moving forward, whatever the moving forward is. And that's why I do it. I mean, I, I'm miserable. A lot of things I do. I mean, I I'm, I'm an ultra runner right now. Most of these big runs I do are miserable. I mean, like a few months ago, I ran 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop, just 0.2 mile loop for 20 hours, 400 laps. It was psychological torture beyond physical torture as well. And I'm going through moments of this where I'm just like, this sucks. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And then after the run's over, I'm planning the next one. I mean, same thing, like even writing a book on fear was scary, you know, scary in a different kind of way. And it was a different kind of discomfort for me. I used to avoid writing by going running a marathon because 
running a marathon, while tough and while, in, in, while it did involve suffering, it was a more comfortable suffering for me. So taking it to the kind of next level was where is the, the, where is the pain, where is the struggle that actually adds struggle on top of it? So it's, I call it meta-suffering. And writing a book was, was an experience of that for me. I mean, right, the whole process was, you know, I'm here I'm writing a book on fear and I'm terrified. Are people going to think it's garbage? Am I going to get a one-star review on Amazon? Are people going to hate, hate it? You know, all this stuff. And it shows up and that's okay. So it's about seeking those experiences. And once you do, you get more acclimatized to the discomfort. So you build up that resilience to want to, and it is very addictive. I mean, and that's where, that's where you kind of go into the darker spaces because it can be very addictive. I mean, coming back from war, I wanted to go back to war. To this day, I want to go into some very, I want to go into war zones. I want to go in conflict zones. And I have to temper that, manage that darkness because the experience is very addictive. And that's where I think you sort of find the fine line by engaging the stress, engaging the suffering, and then bringing it back, like finding this kind of playing in these, these, these spectrums of the dualities, right? So pushing the line and coming back and then figuring out where on the spectrum you want to lie. So you don't get carried away and you don't let one edge push you too far. And we kind of see that a lot with extreme athletes. So many of them push the line and they die or like combat journalists, for example, are great examples of that. They go, they get addicted to combat to the point that so many of them eventually go there and get killed. It's, yeah. And I, I imagine that like intuition plays a big role in this because I mean, I feel like normally the type of fear that I talk about is often in relation to like engaging in unconventional, like sexual scenarios or relational situations. And I think mm -hmm. for a while, because I didn't have a very good relationship with my intuition. And I think most of us don't, um, yeah. that we feel like a physical or mental, discomfort with something and we can't tell if like does that mean there's something wrong here does that mean the situation is wrong or hurtful or painful or is this like a trigger that's inviting me to go somewhere and learn something um yeah right like no. and how do you have like what what has been your experience because i feel like i'm still figuring that out all the time. It's like a constant struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. And no, that is a great question because there's like the fear that can save our life and there's, you know, to, to avoid pursuing and this other fear to engage it. And that is where you build a practice in it. You know, like it's about training yourself to experience it and, and, and to a certain degree, engaging the fear. So for example, something like jumping out of a plane, you know, you, you leap and the fear disappears because you're already flying. Right. And then you kind of in this state of bliss, but something like writing a book, which is a slower fear, if you will, like, you know, that you're constantly having to engage it every day you're writing, like something like that, for example, what I would do is engage the fear. So what am I scared of? Why am I scared? What's the worst case scenario? How do I prepare for the worst case scenario? And then engaging it consciously. So you're rising above it. You're transcending the feeling, rising above it from a conscious higher self, divine self, you know, whatever you want to call it, that prefrontal cortex, the conscious self, and you engage the fear. And that allows you to then decide what you want to do with it and to understand it. But to me, I don't like how, wh why fear shows up is sort of irrelevant. Like, I don't like the term irrational fear because we don't control what happens in the subconscious. Our subconscious reacts to circumstances and it's reacting based on genetics and based on a lot of life experience, everything the world has taught us often without more often than not without our awareness, right? We're just learning implicitly through external circumstances. So like, for example, sometimes I'll be sitting in my home in Jersey comfortable, safe environment, and I'll suddenly get scared being alone. And it's ridiculous because I've done insanely dangerous things. And here I am sitting in like, you know, a comfortable home and I'm scared of being alone, but I no longer judge that fear. I allow myself to be with it. And in terms of, and, and by engaging, like to tapping into intuition, to coming back to that also, in order to understand it, you have to build that muscle in order to build that muscle. You got to practice stillness. 
So that's where you connect with yourself. But today's day and age, right? We're so distracted more than ever before. So we're constantly running away from ourselves in one way or the other, our phones, our laptops, Netflix, binge watching TV, like something And again, even the positive things, you know, could be just running away. So going deep within practicing stillness will allow you to connect more with yourself and build that relationship with yourself. So you understand what's going on and you can then use that as lessons no matter what the world throws at you or even what you're seeking, right? Because there's kind of the world throwing you fear, the world throwing you suffering, and then there's you seeking suffering and seeking fear, right? There's kind of two different circumstances. Sometimes you don't have a choice because life punches you in the face. Other times, like me running an ultramarathon, I'm obviously choosing to engage that, right? But tapping into stillness allows you to navigate the experience of uh, pain, fear, suffering, however, however it shows up and understand yourself in relation to the context of the external circumstances. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. In terms of stillness, do you mean like meditation or are there other sort mm -hmm. of, yeah. Yeah. Meditation is one way. I mean, another example, like how I practice stillness is I, uh, these days I often used to run only, and most people like, right. They'll run listening to music or a podcast or something again, great, nothing wrong with it. But a lot of times now I run with nothing. So I allow my mind to go where it goes. Or like as a very extreme example, what I recently did, I spent seven days in a darkness retreat where I spent seven days just sitting in pitch darkness, isolation, and silence. So I had nowhere to go but within. Like unlike a silent retreat, there's silent retreats are much more common these days. Like they're in India, you know, there are people do 10-day Vipassanas. And, uh, but those, you're still looking, right? Your eyes, you're, you're still walking around, you're, you're seeing things. But in a darkness retreat, you have nowhere external for your mind to go. You're, you're cutting off one of the primary ways which we, with which we engage the world, our visual sense. So without anywhere external to attach consciousness to, you have to go within. Now, that's obviously a fairly extreme scenario to engage stillness, but it was incredible. It was one, I mean, I would do this regularly. I would, without a doubt. In fact, I've thought that eventually my next book, I'm planning on going to go spend a month in the darkness and just write a book in there. Yeah. I would love, I want to hear more about this. Like, why did you, I mean, I guess it makes sense why you decided to do it in terms of cutting off the sort of like visual distraction piece, but like, what was that like? Yeah. And also yeah. what surprised you about it? Yeah. Uh, so actually why I did it personally was because when I, uh, I realized that one of the greatest fears I hadn't engaged was stillness, uh, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, I would meditate here and there, but you know, it was, it was, I was still terrified of it. And what happened was when I went through a very challenging divorce last year, I ended up breaking my sobriety. I had got, I'd struggled with alcohol after the war, gotten sober, broke my sobriety. And I realized something is missing there's still some gaps that I need to go deeper within. So I was actually planning on going to do a silent retreat and I didn't know darkness retreats even existed. So in the research, I ended up finding this and decided to go and uh, loved it. And so what was actually, I mean, I got a lot out of the darkness. I mean, I, I actually journaled in the dark. So some of the things that came through me were deeply profound. What surprised me, and, and I had actually read a little bit about this, but, uh, but it, was, it was still surprising and surreal experiencing it. The light shows you experience in the dark. Because they say that when your brain's in darkness, like pitch darkness, cannot see your hand in front of you darkness for extended periods of time, your brain starts to naturally release DMT, which, as you probably know, is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. And uh, so you go through these surreal light trips. I mean, for the first two days, I would see purple lights, almost like, um, like a lava lamp. And then for whatever reason, which I have no, like I cannot explain, the purple disappeared. And for the last five days, I would only see red and green. And except for one or two moments where there was like one particular moment, which I remember, I think it was about day five. 
it got, it was this blinding white light, blindingly bright. Like I felt like I needed an eye mask to cover it. And I was literally touching my eyelids to see, are my eyes open? Like what's like, I mean, I was trying to cover my eyes, but obviously it wasn't external to light, right? Like I was like, I mean, it was blindingly bright. And then that was surreal. And I mean, like, and then day six, I had this really trippy experience that I found out later was apparently the start of an astral projection, which uh, I was not expecting. I mean, the lady who runs the darkness retreat told me, because what happened was I felt like I was paralyzed. I was laying on my bed and my arm felt like it was locked, like in this sort of claw shape and just locked this way. And I was seeing these red and green lights, like almost looking like the universe above me in the ceiling, just moving around. And every time it would disappear, I would just say, please, God, help me go deeper. And I don't know how many hours I must have been in this, but my, I felt like I could not move. And eventually I felt like I was turning. It felt like the bed was going right and left and I was moving and, uh, and you, and just seeing this surreal light show above me. And eventually again, God knows how many hours later it just stopped. And I was like, there was a tear just rolling down tears rolling down my eyes because it was, I mean, I don't even know how to uh, <laughs> describe it and how to explain what this is, you know, because these, these, these to me, what was really powerful is these experiences transcended reason and rationality. Like there's no logic behind it. There's delving into the realm of the mystical. And as you said, you know, you read my book. So in my book, I'm very, I tend to be very like practical research-based science. Everything has to be explained. But what was really cool for me was to delve into the realm of the mystical where you can't explain things. And I think there's value in tapping into both those spaces, you know, being able to surrender to things that you can't explain to and just accepting, accepting the isness of that. So that was all awesome. And um, sorry, I'm going to big rant, but one more final point <laughs> about <going>. this <laughs> is like the most profound thing among many things I got in the darkness, but the most profound part was coming back into the light after seven days. Mm-hmm. When I first opened up my eyes, I mean, I was like tearing up and just the profundity of seeing the world that way, like two thoughts went through my mind is I wish I could see the world every day through these eyes. And the second was, this deep sense of like, I mean, it's one thing to say I'm grateful for this, but it was like a knowingness of gratitude for every bit of darkness, pain and suffering I've been through in my life because I realized in a very visceral and tangible way that you cannot see the light that way unless you've been in the dark, you know, and of course, not just literally, but figuratively as well. And that was deeply profound. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely think there is, I mean, I didn't, I only ex- or understood this conceptually until relatively recently. I also like mm-hmm. went through a divorce, which like just triggered this like intense, awful dark night of the soul, like yeah, recognizing everything. And it just like one thing triggered another, triggered another. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole, the whole concept of like, you have to experience the lows to experience the highs or like experience the pain in order to experience the joy. Like I remember thinking about that and being like, okay, like, I guess that makes sense. And then actually being in it was like, oh, fuck, okay, I get it. Um, And I think I think fear, like, I wonder if, I mean, there's lows as in like emotional pain and and grief, right? Yeah. And I wonder, though, if part of like, in even working it back into stillness, this is something I talk about a lot, too, that like, I think a lot of what we're fearful of is just the fear (laughs) itself, right? Like, because we have this relationship to it that, um, seems like it's got to be negative. If I'm fearful, there's something that's wrong here. Um, and in this darkness retreat that you did, like, did you have moments of that? Like something's, something's (laughs) fucked up or something's wrong, or were you able to stay sort of like present and focused on 
Like I know this is where I'm meant to be. And although this is crazy, it's right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I definitely had moments where I'm just sitting in the dark being like, shit, I have a long time left in this darkness. (laughs) And you you had like no like time. Like you couldn't I had no sense of hours, but I had sense of days because I could hear the birds chirping outside in the Uh, morning. Okay. So I knew that it was morning. So I had a sense of days, but no sense of hours, if that and makes what did, sense. Did you, like, what was sleeping like? Did you sort of follow a regular sleep schedule? Mm, you kind, kind of, no idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for the I think for the first day, I just slept a good chunk of it for the first day, first day and a half, because I think most of us are probably in some degree of like a sleep debt. And right. so God knows I was. So for the first day and a half, I think I slept a good chunk of it. And then other than that, it was just when, you know, I mean, it went through basically almost, I would say five different experiences in the dark. One was just sleep. The other one is the meditation where you're kind of like, uh, where you, where you, you silence your thoughts and you anchor your thoughts to your breathing. So this is more traditional meditation. You, right. you, as thoughts show up, you let them flow. The other kind of meditation, which I don't, which I think is equally valuable, but not, not often as practiced in my experience is where you actually let your thoughts go and you be with the thoughts. You're not, I mean, you're, as, sorry, you don't let your thoughts go. You actually engage the thoughts. Let them go where they go, but you're not trying to let them float away and anchor them, anchor your thoughts to your breathing to kind of, so you're not silencing the mind, basically. There's the meditation of silencing the mind. And in this one, you're letting your thoughts just go wild. So there was that. Then the fourth experience was just basically sitting there being like, fuck, the darkness sucks. I got a long time sitting here. And then the other one was journaling. It was basically those five experiences in a sort of cyclical process of actually journaling in the dark. And the stuff that came through in the journal was like, I mean, I remember reading it after it. And, and I say came through because... I mean, again, I'm not one to be in that mystical thing, but like, like when I think about my book, I wrote my book, but when I think about what came through in the, in the dark was came through in the sense that even me reading it later, I was like, Whoa, like I was blown away reading that, what came through later on. And I mean, yeah, I remember reading it on the flight back from Germany where I did the darkness retreat and I was like tearing up. I was like, Oh my God, this is wild. You know, the stuff that was coming through. So it was very cool. And that's why I thought eventually I'm just going to go spend a month there and write another book and yeah. see what comes through. <laughs> So what is, I love, I talk about spiritually, spirituality a lot on my show. I was definitely raised in a way where I didn't realize there was any form of spirituality that wasn't tied to Mm -hmm. some sort of like organized religion. So my perspective was like, I have to do that or nothing. And neither one of those made sense to me. Um, And then just sort of through my own experiences recognize that like I could have my own sort of unique form of spirituality, which I think is a common situation for people uh, in general, but specifically, I think my age where uh, religion is sort of like, you know, we're, we're not super intrigued in it anymore, but I think especially given what's going on in the world, it's like, what the fuck is happening? And I want to be able to believe in something or like feel like I'm, I'm being moved by something. Um, yeah. So like, I'd love to hear you talk about what spirituality is to you. And also, like, what was the point at which you sort of started to have a relationship with that? Yeah. So yeah, the the question of like, sort of how do you define spirituality is always something that I still, I, I mean, who, who I don't claim to have the right answer. And I remember actually having this conversation not too long ago, and we were Googling, what does spirituality mean? <laughs> Just to see, <laughs> see how Google would define it. But yeah. I think it kind of kind of like means um, seeking like a, a oneness, seeking something, seeking a greater connection to yourself, to others, to the world, to the universe. And I think so I think at the core, we are all spiritual beings but some of us do it more on a conscious level 
than others, right? Like I think many live our lives on autopilot. Unfortunately, we go about every single day as if it's the same and not seeking something more, right? So I think that that's what it means to me is seeking this oneness. I mean, we were talking, I mentioned earlier about dualities, right? So there's in like in life, there's all these dualities, darkness, light, life, death, uh, contentment, discontentment, ego, humility, you know, suffering, play. And there's all kinds of fear, nirvana, like there's all kinds of dualities. And we often frame the, we frame things as other. I mean, even as human beings, that's why wars happen because we, I mean, the, the, the root of all conflict is ultimately a sense of otherness. And I think the destruction of otherness is the essence of spirituality, seeking the oneness of all that is. I mean, like, for example, in the darkness, right? Like I viscerally experienced light and dark coexisting as one. And that knowingness of that is a spiritual awakening that is an experience of, to me, an experience of enlightenment. I don't think enlightenment is a destination because the, the only arrival ultimately is death, right? Until death, there's always more to be to, to search for. There's another awakening to be had. And I think experiencing moments where you not just like, not just rationally get it, but know it, feel it, taste it, experience it. That's an experience of an awakening. That's an experience of an enlightenment. And I think in order to go there, you have to go into spaces that are going to test you. You know, I think you go into spaces that will, you'll experience the pain, you'll experience the suffering, you'll experience fear because only on the extremes, on the edges of the human experience, can you truly understand what I, like, again, in my experience, what it truly means to be human at its highest level. And those are the spiritual awakenings. and the edges could be in everything. I mean, I know I talk a lot about suffering, but the other edge is the edge of joy, right? The edge of play and experiencing that at its most intense, at its most visceral. And, and seeking the, just all spectrum, like all edges of the of, of every duality, whatever the duality may be, like right, like life, death, darkness, light. I mean, I actually keep keep this constant list of dualities on my phone, and uh, and I'm always right every time I come across a new one. So another one, for example, is the practical and the mystical, right? Like I never used to engage the mystical, and now I'm delving more into that space. So my experience with let's say faith, if you want to call it that, I, I myself am not religious, right? Like. I wasn't really raised. My mom's kind of Hindu, but not really raised in that way. But I always felt something more, right? As I especially joined the Marines, climbed mountains, started to experience the spiritual. But I would say only recently, kind of again, after that divorce, did I delve more into faith on a more, um, on a much more like conscious seeking of faith and faith in again, whatever you want to call it. But like two, two things really helped shape that was reading this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I don't know if, have you read it? Yeah. 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 Love that book. And it shaped my experience of how I define God. Everybody has their own definition of God. And then the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know. Have you seen that one? I haven't. No. So it's a very powerful, it's a war movie based on true story where this guy, Desmond Doss, he single-handedly saved 75 people off a cliff among many insane acts of courage. And he was a conscientious objector. So he like, you know, he, he did not believe in war, but he went to war as a medic. And he, what he did, dragging 75 people off a cliff, like sometimes pulling them as far as a football field. I mean, in Marine training, we used to drag one person like here to 20 yards and it's brutal. What he did was impossible, right? Like, but how he was able to do that, he tapped into something that's beyond human. And you hear about these acts of inhuman levels of courage all the time, right? And to me, that is transcending the self and that self-transcendence is an experience of faith and it's experience of God. But, and, and so to, to transcend the self, you have to like, I think suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence. 
And self-transcendence is the pathway to self-actualization, where if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization is the highest need, right? And Viktor Frankl puts it beautifully. He says that self-actualization, he says, um, uh, self-actualization is a side effect of self-transcendence, which I absolutely love. And I think it's so true. So to transcend the self, you got to go into spaces where the self is going to struggle. And then you transcend the self to move, keep moving forward anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I just had someone on my podcast, one of my favorite authors, Francis Weller. Um, he wrote a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which I highly recommend. Um, mm. But he spoke about, he hosts communal grief rituals. So like we've forgotten how to grieve in our world predominantly. Um, and so he brings people together to do these like grief, grief rituals. And he spoke about grief as being sort of like, we have to derange ourselves because the current arrangement is not working. And we have to like, uh, at least temporarily like derange and then move back into a space that's more sort of like aligned with our authenticity and our, um, Mm. sort of like true soul purpose. Um, but I do feel like, I mean, I'd love to hear what you feel is the relationship between fear and suffering. Like, do you see those as one in the same? Do you see fear? Is it a separate thing? Because certainly I think, and maybe suffering is a problematic word, but grief, I guess, like pa experiencing painful emotions definitely yeah. to me feels like this sort of temporary derangement, like your body reacts and even in a way that's like, I don't know what's going on here. And you come out on the other side, hopefully yeah. having made a lot of realizations. Um, but how do you see fear fitting into that? Like is fear inherently a form of pain or suffering or do you see it as something else? Yeah, no, uh, I think that, I think it's an, like, I use the word suffering as a sort of a, a meta word, an umbrella word to define any experience of like struggle, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that suffering has a little bit of a more jarring sense, like it has a jarring feel to it than let's say struggle. But I use that intentionally because suffering feels so much harder than struggle. So if I can embrace suffering, then I can embrace struggle, right? Like inherently, because the suffering feels tougher. So I think fear, grief, stress, anxiety, these are all experiences that are inherently uncomfortable, right? And so I use suffering to define that uncomfort, that discomfort, because fear can, and again, depending on your relationship to fear, like now I can do a scary thing and it's exciting, right? Because fear and excitement are also kind of two sides of the same coin. And so some people, as you engage fear, fear feels like an, excite an excitement. It doesn't feel like an experience of suffering. So to me now, like jumping out of a plane is exciting, but running an ultra marathon is suffering, right? So <laughs> there's a distinction between the two. And I think it kind of just depends on your experience and engagement to some people as they engage fear, like fear is this visceral, I mean, especially, I mean, it was to me too, as you're newer to the experience of it, it's, it's highly uncomfortable, right? Like it's a, even grief. I mean, grief is brutal. I mean, I've lost a lot of people along the way, lost friends to suicide after the war, lost a junior Marine to war in the war, going through a divorce, losing friends. It's, it's painful. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an experience of suffering, but there is beauty in all of it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a de definitely distinction between fear and suffering. And I think that, um, it's your relationship to all of it. It's your experience of it that shapes it. So like fear might not be an experience of suffering for me anymore, but it might be to somebody else, right? The idea ultimately is to develop a positive relationship to any experience of pain and not to run away from it. Like, I don't like that quote, you know, FDR, who said the only thing to fear is fear itself. We kind of touched on this earlier. And I think that's so not true. Fear should not be feared, you know, and even grief. Like, I love that what you mentioned about this person doing these grief rituals. Like I went to one personal development seminar where somebody had lost his father and he was grieving 
And the person who was running it, I don't want to name names or anything, but he was like trying to help him get over the grief. And I'm like, why? <laughs> if yeah. you lost somebody, inevitably you're going to grieve. It's going to like embrace that, be with that pain. It sucks. It hurts. But stop trying to just get to the other side of it. There's beauty in that, you know, and, right. and only by being with the pain can you find the beauty in it and then actually move through it, you know, and transcend it. But don't just try to run away from it, however it shows up. Right. Well, and I think it is, again, like, I love that you bring up dualities because I'm like just totally obsessed. I also like write them all down and like yeah, I'm so awesome. paradoxes. Um, but with grief, like, and he talks, I mean, he talks about grief in a very broad sense. So like, not just like someone has died, but like in all that mm. we've lost, right? Like whether we yeah. grew up with, um, you know, we all have mostly grown up in a culture that like just did not provide for us what I feel like we all deserved and expected when we came and um, mm. ancestral grief and all these different types of grief. But you know, he says that like grief is on, it's the other side of the spectrum from, from love. I mean, obviously it's like all of these, mm -hmm. I think are, uh, dualities, but yet also coexist, uh, right? Like there's that sort yeah. of emerging space. Um, but he says how, you know, to someone who is afraid to grieve because they feel like if they grieve that they will like forget or disconnect from the love that they felt from this person who they lost. And he sort of just says like, grief is your new relationship. Like grief is love. And therefore mm -hmm. the grieving is now the sort of evolution of your relationship to that mm -hmm. person. Um, and in terms of like those things coexisting, right? The when I've experiences, like I, I often would hear people say like, you know, I think gratitude is a very sort of misunderstood concept and word where people think it's a way to like avoid the pain. Well, just be grateful for all that you have and that will get you away from the painful emotion, um, which always like pissed me off. And then I realized that it was only in sort of like the depths of pain that I experienced actual gratitude like that's where it lived was like coexisting mm. with its sort of like spectrum opposite um mm. so with fear um i think you mentioned this before but like where do you see what is fear like merged with or on a spectrum with and yeah. how have you experienced that you know, I, I, I've, when I hear most people talk about it, I'll say I'll, I hear people often frame fear and love as the two of I've heard people say that there's only two ways of being fear and love. And I think that's complete nonsense, yeah. complete nonsense, because I think fear is an expression of love. You know, like, why am I afraid of losing my life or if something bad happens to uh, somebody I care about? Like that's fear is an ultimate expression of love. It's not the opposite, you know? So I frame it and I'm still kind of wrestling, like in, if I look at the context of fear nirvana, right? Like fear and nirvana, because fear is, they say the most like neuroscientist Joseph Ledeau calls the most primal emotion. That's that, at the core, that's what our brain is responding to the world because our brain's primarily in, primary instinct is not to make us happy. It's to make us to survive. So it's constantly looking, is this thing going to kill us? And the fear response is that most primal emotion, right? So if you look at it in that sense, that's fear. And then the other sense, if you look at like, what is the human human beings unlike let's say animals we have the ability to be self-aware right so i can be conscious that i am here and having this conversation with you so to transcend the primal emotions and that prefrontal cortex or self-consciousness which ultimately at that highest level what are we seeking if you look at it in the context of okay enlightenment so so at some level i would potentially say but i'm not i'm not claiming to say i know the dualities because even some of the dualities i frame like suffering and play there's could be other ways to 
to, mm-hmm. to frame that. Right. But, uh, but regardless of the, um, the verbiage or the semantics of it, ultimately there's two, there's an experience of fear. There's an experience of the opposite, right? The, the enlightenment, the, so like, like, like jumping on a plane is a great example. I might be terrified before I jump out, but as soon as I do, the fear is gone because now I'm in quote, what I could call fear of honor, right? In this state of bliss where, uh, where now it's just in, cause I mean, you, you're not really scared once you fly out, <laughs> once you leave, you're, then you're just really enjoying the experience. And that obviously could transcend to many different experiences. So I think, yeah, fear and nirvana to some senses are these dualities. But again, that's the, that's the, the beauty is that they coexist, right? Even with like grief and love. I mean, even guilt is such a demonized emotion. People say, I've, I was just sharing some podcasts the other day where somebody like a big person in this world, a person was saying guilt is a useless, worthless emotion and we should guilt. And I'm like, no, like <laughs> guilt is another expression of love. Like to this day, I struggle with survivor's guilt from a friend I lost in the war. And I feel it because that was someone I love, right? Like guilt is that expression. I mean, and it's, of course, it's not just war veterans that go through it. Every, anybody who's lost somebody often has that question. Why did that person die and not me? You know? So guilt is not something bad. Like ultimately there are no bad or good emotions and there's no bad or good experiences. Accepting the isness of what is, whether it be an external experience or an internal emotion, accepting the isness then allows us to do something empowering with it. I don't even say like bad or good. It's empowering or disempowering. Does And even like, again, a quote unquote negative emotion can be empowering, right? And so can a quote unquote positive emotion be disempowering. I mean, it's the search for too much joy that can send us into some pretty dark spaces, you know, in terms of doing drugs. And I mean, it's, it's this search of too much joy that has us avoid seeking the pain that's necessary for evolution. So even joy, a quote unquote positive emotion can be disempowering in terms of our evolution, right? So just accepting the isness of all that is, is the, is, is I think the stepping stone to then embracing the oneness of all dualities, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you say? And again, the answer I'm sure is quite nuanced, but like to people who say, you know, the more you fear something, the more it will come true, right? So if you're fearful that you're going to be betrayed, you're going to move toward scenarios or situations in which you'll be betrayed, which I think, I mean, I question myself around this a lot because I'm trying to do two things. I'm like trying not to be irrational. Well, I love that you don't like the the term (laughs) irrationally fearful, but I, you know, fearful in the sense that I'm expressing fear around a situation and the fear is actually like, um, uh, remnants from something I experienced in the past. Right. It's like, I'm I'm fearing something now, but it's actually something from uh, a different situation or a different time, like versus, I should just like live in this space with the fear and learn from it. And, at what point am I doing myself a, a service or a disservice, you know? Yeah. No, um, love it. Love it. That's a, yeah. yeah, I think it's a great question. And I, I get it. I hear, yeah, heard that too, right? Like if you fear this, you're focusing on it and what you focus, you create. And again, I, I think that, I think that the, the value is like, whatever the fear is, it's no, it's normal. It's going to showing up there for a reason. So understand it. If your fear of being betrayed, right. Understand where that comes from, delve into it. So like, I was terrified of my book going nowhere, putting like years of work into this and having it being like useless and nothing happens to it. Right. So what do I do with it? I engage it. I understand what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? I'm afraid of writing a bad book. So how do I write a good book? Because I was right, afraid of writing a bad book. I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, the chicken soup soul author, Tim Ferriss, you know, authors who have known to write well, good books. And I studied, how do you write a good book? 
So when you're afraid of being betrayed, understand it and then say, okay, if this is the, if this is the core of the fear, this is why I'm afraid. This is the, this is the essence of it. Let me, let me figure out what to do to prepare for that potential scenario that I'm scared of. So it's not like a bad thing. And it's not just because you fear on it, just because you fear it, they're focusing on it. That's what'll show up. Part of it is then using it to understand and prepare for the scenario. I mean, like I must've trashed a hundred thousand words worth of work to write my final book. And now it's something I'm truly proud of, but it was because I was scared of writing a bad book that I wrote what what I would not like, you know, arguably is a good book and uh, that I'm now proud of, but only because I was scared. If I wasn't scared, I would just put anything out there. Right. And it's the same thing in any context in betrayal. So one is understanding it. And then two, definitely visualizing the other side of it. So in the sense of visualization is not just some woo-woo tool, right? Like there's value to it. Research has shown it. Athletes use it all the time. The best athletes in the world visualize. So visualizing yourself on the outcome that you actually want, right? But it's not, again, it's not an either or. It's not like, oh, okay, I'm scared of this thing. Let me only see the positive, see the positive. No, like don't run away from that fear. Don't run away from that, what that fear is telling you from what the darker side of it, right? Engage it, understand it, use it as a lesson, prepare for that worst case scenario and visualize what you want to create. So, you know, I can visualize my book doing well. I can, uh, um, I visualize this relationship going well, whatever it may be, but I'm also preparing by engaging the fear, right? And that, and then doing both also helps you at the core understand like your why, you know, like, why does this matter to me? What's this, what's like, why does this relationship matter? Why does my book matter? Why does this thing that scares me matter? And knowing that is, is also fundamental. I mean, like Simon Sinek, start with why, right? Like knowing the core motivation behind what we're doing, that, that is, um, a real, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful tool that you can keep tapping into to, I wouldn't say not to eliminate the fear, but to transcend the fear, to rise above it. Because again, it's not always going to go away, but you can rise above it to take action anyway. Yeah, I do feel like we definitely have a choice with how we engage with it. I was talking this morning about this, the question of like, have I wasted time with fear? Like, is there something that I've just like feared so, so much and like wasted and put all this energy and anxiety into that then just never happened. And when I reflected on it, I thought like, I feel like the things that I was the most fearful of in my life, at least sort of often did happen in a sense, like, Hmm. and, and this is more around, like, I'm afraid, you know, this relationship won't work, or I'm afraid this opportunity isn't right. And I think what was going on, like, I think what was going on is like the investing all the energy and the anxiety in the way that I did just sort of prolonged the inevitable. Whereas if like, it was unavoidable, the fear in the first place to sort of like, again, like instead of avoiding it or being afraid of the fear to like dive into it and be like, okay, like, I'm really afraid of this thing happening. Like I had this moment was in this bad situation and it was driving me crazy and I felt totally like helpless and I didn't know what to do and I didn't feel capable of making a decision or like knowing what I felt versus someone else and at one point I think I was like crying and I was just so frustrated and I threw myself like down on the floor and I remember asking myself silently like or asking the universe rather silently like what should I do and the voice that I heard back was you know exactly what to do And I was just like, oh, fuck, you know, and I feel like it was only because I sort of like engaged fully in that terror that I could figure it out. But I do think it's like going back to our original uh, the um, beginning of the conversation around intuition. Like, I don't know how we engage with fear um, 
in a way that's like inherently positive until we really like hone that relationship with our own inner Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's like the stillness journaling is such a powerful tool, you know, going into those spaces and just, uh, and, and, and tapping into, like you said, when you, when you sort of ask the universe and whoever, whatever you believe in, you know, God universe is surrendering to some degree to this mystical. And ultimately you can even call that just your deeper intuition, right? Like I think that's, and tapping into that will, will, will give you, cause there's no right quote unquote, right answer. You take a step, right. And you could do it and then it could go horribly wrong. What, <laughs> you know, like, it, but, but, but you don't, you won't, you can't, you can't know that you do. You, we make, we make the calls on decisions and prediction for the future based on everything we've learned based on like sort of the best decisions we can make. Right. But you never know. And things could go badly. Uh, but even in that, eventually you'll find some meaning <laughs> and then you'll keep moving forward anyway, right? So it hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say, because there's beauty in all the pain when you're looking back at it. Sometimes it just sucks when you're like, shit, I wish I did that instead of that. And then maybe it wouldn't have gone that way, but you never know. So you just kind of, I think, pra- and that's where you just practice and train in it, you know? Yeah. But you, that's where coming back, yeah, to take that time to be still a little bit more, to journal, to, to meditate, to, to engage with yourself, to put yourself in situations where you're forced to, engage this battle between yourself you know this like like that again coming back to suffering like where one party you wants to quit and the other wants to fight when you go into those spaces you'll find out something more within yourself and then it also just builds the confidence to say hey i'll make this decision no matter what happens i'm, I'm i got the i'm gonna be able to fight anyway you know uh so building that that inner strength that that courage um uh, that virtue will is the most important of virtue courage and that that comes through training yeah yeah and i feel like intention is so important too i remember you sort of mentioned this briefly, which reminded me of it, like having this moment of realizing that like what I was seeking externally was sort of the same, like instead of trying to like seek enlightenment to sort of reframe it as like my intuition is the voice that I'm (laughs) hearing externally. Mm -hmm. Right. So like God is me as you know, hyperbolic as that sounds. Um, but I do think like that's, you know, I wanted to ask you sort of about like spiritual bypassing, right? If you're going into these situations to try and like be this type of a person or seek this type of enlightenment, um, how to kind of avoid that. And I wonder if you've thought about this too. Like for me, I just try and focus more on like, if I can just listen to myself more and become more mm-hmm. aware of myself, that that inherently either is, is, is most of what I need, or at least allows me to develop a connection to something mystical that's external Mm -hmm. without it being, um, like egoic or narcissistic in some way. Hmm. So, okay. I think I'm understanding. So forgive me if I'm not understanding. I think I I kind of get your question. So I guess the, I guess let me kind of say it is that Am I, am I going into a situation seeking something specifically or sort of surrendering to experiencing the journey and the, and, and, and the intuition, right? Is that, yeah, or like, or like when you're going into the experiences or you're like, I'm going to be more enlightened, or is it like, uh, I want to learn more about myself, <laughs> which may I got you. that or be the same as that, I got but you. intentionally it's like a slightly different energy totally feel you okay yeah i get you so victor frankl i come back to him he's like like, have you ever read man's search for meaning totally (laughs) one of of the most yeah one of my favorites too and so i quote him a lot and he says something like that in the in the book right he says i forget how he puts it exactly the quote but he says like happiness like success cannot be pursued he says it sort of ensues as a side effect 
of just seeking meaning, right? Like pursuing our meaning in, in whatever it may be seeking meaning. So you don't, we don't pursue, like I'm, I'm going, I'm chasing this to be happy or I want to seek success. It just happens. So like even success, for example, let's say, for example, I want to make a million dollars, right? Now I might have that target in the back of my mind. Let's say because I'm defining success as financial, of course, that's not by any means just the measure of success, but that's what the most conventional measure measurement tends to be, right? So let's just say that's my target. Now, how does that happen? I might set that in the back of my mind as a target, but what how that happens is the result of creating enough value to, to get that, right? Through seeking a meaning, my meaningful path to deliver the value that happens. So I think, so to, so again, you're kind of coming at the duality of it. It's like, I mean, looking at like on a mountain climb, for example, I might have the target being the summit, right? I want to get to the summit, but ultimately it's not about the summit. Like, like uh, Edmund Hillary said, it's not the summit, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves, right? So the summit is the side effect of the person I become on the way. Whether or not I've climbed mountains where I have hit the summits and I've climbed mountains where I haven't hit the summits. Ultimately, what matters is the, the person I become on that journey. So we, the target is not what it's about, but I do think there's value in setting a target and just having it be in the back of your mind because it almost becomes like a compass, right? Like, so like, again, mountain climbing analogy is I know I want to get to the summit. So I'm not just wandering around the mountain, but ultimately it's not about getting there. It's about who I become. Right. And so celebrating that journey, like I like to say, the journey is the destination, you know, but again, we live in a world that frames it the opposite. You know, we always are seeking this thing to make us happy. I'll be happy when I make a million dollars. I'll be happy when I get the relationship. I'll be happy when I get the car, the house, the six pack abs, whatever. And we're always looking for the easiest way to get there. You know, like always here, I mean, you'll see this all the time. Everybody's saying, here's the fast, easy way to make a million dollars rapidly or walk 14 minutes a day and get six pack abs, you know, and it's just bullshit. It's absolute like nonsense. Firstly, that's just not going to happen, right? Like I, I work out like a beast and I still got a little bit of fat on me that pisses me off at no end, right? So <laughs> because the point is, you're, it's just not going to happen realistically. That's one element. But two, it's missing the whole point anyway. Like even if you look at like diet, I'm going to go on a big rant about this because it pisses me off and it, I think it's damaging. It hurts people like people say okay here's how to get six pack abs without exercise and just die now i get like i get it in terms of fitness diet is more important than exercise in terms of weight loss i get all that but the point that it's missing is it's framing it as the easiest path to getting the result and what that does is it's damaging it tells people it's about the result they think they'll get well when they get this thing whatever the thing is then they'll be happy and eventually if they if and when they get there they get there and there's a new problem that shows up right we see this with all the time with people who seemingly have everything celebrities or whatever they're still going through their own shit everybody goes through their own shit because it's not about getting the thing the thing can be in the back of your mind. And once that thing is achieved, there'll be a new target. Like one of my mantras is there is no finish line. You know, like there is the only finish line ultimately is death, right? And also, until then, I'll hit a target, then I move on to the next one. I mean, we've, and even with like Olympic gold medal athletes, they've done so many studies that they'll win the gold. And then they're actually horribly depressed after that because their whole life they worked to this target. And ultimately, some of them will, you'll, you'll kind of hit that, oh, what, like, that's not really what, you know, great that they got it. That's awesome. But it's not just about the target and setting the meaning. Like, that's why I like to, and I learned this from Michael Gervais. He's this leading peak performance psychologist. He says, crystallize your core philosophy. Like, what is your ethos? And everybody has a different one. Like, have your ethos in the back of your mind. And that ethos is your North Star. It's your compass. So the target is not. So like, for example, my guiding philosophy, my ethos is the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. 
Like that's my North star. That's everything that the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. So I might have a target, right? Like I have running, let's say running, I'm running 50 miles. That's my target. I hit it. But the inner war is always going to be fought. There's always another inner war to fight. So that's my North star. And that meaning that like coming back to Victor Frankl, that's the meaning we assign to our lives. And we're seeking that meaning. We're living that meaning. And then the happiness, the success and all that other stuff is a side effect that happens from pursuing our meaning. Right. Yeah. And I, I think also like just developing a lot more of a healthy relationship with, I don't like the word failure, but just in terms of like making mistakes or even just giving yourself permission to like change your mind and grow out of a thing. Um, I feel like I was always the type of person growing up where like, I was just sort of like taking risks and like doing weird shit and like not really following Mm -hmm. the path that I was supposed to follow. And I remember I mean, young being in like middle school and high school. And I I think my friend's parents sort of saw me as like, (laughs) I wasn't doing anything exceptionally terrible, but like kind of a bad influence on their kids. Mm. Like, oh, you know, she's in that crazy relationship with that older person or like, oh, she graduated high school early or, you know, just sort of like winging it and and following Mm. something. And, you know, my, my dad said something to me recently, like, you know, I think the only way that we get anywhere sort of grand in life is that along the way, like it means we kind of fuck up and we, we like, I'm going to go really, I'm going to, I'm going to go toward that, even though it's scary. And even though it's risky, because I feel like it's going to teach me something, you know, and like this whole idea that quote unquote alignment is not comfort. Like people think that, being comfortable and feeling safe um, is the answer to everything. And I just feel like more and more as I get older, that the more I sort of butt up against a fear, like the more I keep hitting a wall of something Mm -hmm. that sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, has fear in it or yeah, fear mostly like, I'm like, yes, I'm on the right track, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's really unfortunate. I feel like our world, we don't, have we don't hold that collectively but to me it's the opposite like alignment is the act of engaging in what's scary absolutely yeah Yeah. and when you put yourself in those spaces you start to kind of you'll find alignment with the mind body spirit the mission and the external world because again that oneness can only happen in those spaces right you're not gonna like sitting down on a couch watching a movie i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that inherently like you balance again comfort with discomfort but the point is if that's all you're seeking you're missing out on tapping into things within yourself that you cannot know in the in in, in security and comfort you can only find that in outside it so totally get that yeah. So your book, I like it. It's very like methodical and practical in how you, <laughs> you write about it, which is which is nice. So I would love to hear like for people listening who don't totally have a relationship with fear at all or a good relationship with it, like what are some things that people can do, you know, uh, or maybe give multiple examples of things people can do both in terms of like activities, but also just sort of like mental exercises to sort of like engage this space. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, fundamentally, the first thing, like the most important thing, this other other stuff is just little tools. Most important thing is just put yourself in spaces that push you outside your comfort zone, even if it's just one step, right? Like, again, I was terrified of Ferris wheels. Now I do pretty crazy things. I didn't get there overnight. So just fundamentally train yourself. I mean, it could be walking up to a woman or a man in a bar, right? That's scary. Whatever it may be, just going like doing little things that scare you 
and testing, like just one step. So that's fundamentalist training yourself in fear. Now, in terms of like other tools and practices, so like I mentioned, like engaging the fear. So understanding, isolating yourself from the fear of journaling, like again, like with my book, what I did, you know, why am I scared? What am I afraid of? What's the worst case scenario? How can I prepare for the worst case scenario? So engage the emotion, engage the fear. Uh, that's another thing. Visualizing the opposite. Like what's visualizing the, not the, I wouldn't say the opposite, but visualizing the result you want to create on the other side of the fear. Visualizing again, very powerful tool. Knowing your, knowing your why, understanding like, why does this thing matter to me? Another really powerful tool is meditating on death. Uh, like we, human beings, we psychologically do more to avoid pain than we do to gain pleasure. But in this sort of law of attraction world, we only focus on gaining pleasure, right? Like, let me just visualize myself walking on the beach in the, in our home and all will be good. And that's, that's okay. Not a bad thing, but also engage pain, like also engage the pain you want to avoid. So Buddhism has a practice where they meditate on death. Like I actually have a, a sign up in my living room that says you will die soon with a picture of a graveyard on it and not just any graveyard. It's the graveyard that from where my friend was buried in Iraq. So like when, who, who died in Iraq, it's his, his tombstone. So very intense things to look at every single day and just reminding me you will die soon. Now, I'm not saying you have to take it to my level, but the point is, is like finding some way to to stay present to your own mortality because that will drive you understanding like like knowing that and being very very clear of that is helpful having clarity on like um, a thing you want to achieve clarity of, because we're setting goals subconsciously anyway anything right like if i walk from here to the other end of this house i'm setting a goal that i'm, I'm like goals to get to the kitchen whatever it may be right so we're always setting goals to do something so just make it more conscious and have clarity of purpose, clarity of outcome, clarity of mission, getting crystal clear on your philosophy, your mission, you know, like companies have mission statements, I have my own. And that becomes a North Star, that becomes a guiding compass. And then finally, I would say like, here's a really practical tool to um, engage a challenging emotion. And to remember it, it's basically L-M-N-O-P. So it's a very simple exercise. But if you do this consistently, game changer, because ultimately what this does is it rewires your brain patterns. So let me break that down. L is label the emotion. Neuroscience has shown that when you label an emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional part of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain related to focus and awareness, like your prefrontal cortex. So basically, you're not being consumed by the emotion. You're allowing yourself to pause. And instead of react to the emotion, you can consciously respond to the emotion. So label it, just pausing, saying, hey, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling angry, whatever it may be. Second part of the L is language. So shifting your body language, especially if it's like a really disempowering emotion, or I wouldn't say disempowering emotion, but a challenging emotion in the sense like, okay, I'm feeling sad, you know, and instead of like slouching or something, I can just shift my body language to one of feeling more powerful. Uh, so that's L. M is meaning. What is the meaning I have created to the external circumstance creating that emotion? Or what is the meaning I've created to the emotion itself? So there's two kind of things to recognize. Mostly we're, we always look at meaning in terms of what are the meaning I'm creating to the external circumstance, but we also create meanings to our emotions, right? Like I've worked with somebody who was feeling anxious from writing and then he would create a meaning. He had a meaning that, okay, nobody would want to read my writing, right? So that's the meaning to the external circumstance, but he also had a meaning to his anxiety that, oh, I'm weak, I'm pathetic because he felt anxious. So understanding the meaning, then the end where this is like, I think the core of it, where you say, it's not me, it's my brain. Recognizing that you are not your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences. You are the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings and the experiencer of your experiences. Recognizing that space and not being attached to it is everything because most of us get attached. We become our emotions, right? Like I've worked with, with people with, you name the mental health disorder. Like one person I worked with uh, depression and she would say things like I am depressed or I have depression. It became her self-identity. 
right? Instead of saying things, look, my brain goes through a pattern, but this is not me. This is not the essence of who I am. So that's the N. It's not me. O is you opt for a new meaning. So you start seeking a new meaning to the experience and to the emotion. So uh, like with this person I work with, the anxiety, he started looking at new meanings for why his anxiety, why he was feeling anxious about writing. Oh, he's anxious because he cares. You know, like I felt scared about writing a bad book because I cared about my message. You know, so why, so like reframing the meaning to the emotion, you opt for a new meaning and to the experience itself. And then finally, P. So P is purpose and preemptive strike. So do something in line with that higher purpose, in line with that philosophy crystallized, right? So even in this case, like with this person I work with writing, he would just write for five minutes because his pattern was sit on a computer, feel anxiety, retreat, go watch TV and silence the mind, right? So even if it's just two minutes, something to rewire the brain pattern. So take some action to rewire. And then the final piece, preemptive strikes, where you preemptively prepare for the obstacle you know you will that will show up. Like if you know... Every time you write, you're going to feel for it. You preemptively prepare for it. If so whatever it may be. And they've done studies where they had uh, people who elderly people with the knee and hip replacement surgery, they would write down exactly how they're going to, let's say, walk to a bus stop or take their shower. They would prepare ahead of time. Like, here's how I'm going to do it. What time I'm going to do it. I know I'm going to feel pain and engage it. So you're preemptively preparing for the obstacle. And the people who did that recovered three times faster than those who did not do that. So, uh, and I've used this in many, many contexts and this little tool, if you just consistently practice it, I use it to this day to rewire, um, my emotions that I struggle with. That's been really, really helpful for me. And a lot of people have found that helpful as well in terms of feedback I've gotten. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I think like, I mean, just one point, I feel like we've sort of played with a lot, but that I wanted to mention specifically is like how, how much, you know, that how much of this is about like, for me, more than half the time when I'm afraid of something and this is less like activity and more, you know, sort of all consuming in terms of choices I'm making in my life. But when I, when I recognize I'm afraid of something, a lot of it is that like, I'm reacting to something that's happened in the past that was really painful. And so like the fear reaction is to avoid that feeling that pain again. And I think like, it's so, we're so afraid of, crying we're so afraid of grieving we're so afraid of feeling pain that so much of this is just trying to prevent that as much as possible so we see like we experience fear and we're like oh shit fear is gonna lead to that pain and so like fuck it all like i'm not gonna go there yeah and i love this whole thing about like preemptively preparing that it's like yes i think for me when i allow myself to engage the fear and move into that space it often leads me to a place of like great sorrow of like fuck like that terrible thing happened to me before that I think like and the fear is a natural reaction of on the part of my psyche and my nervous system to like prevent that from happening again yeah Yeah. but the only way to move through this is to actually just like process the feelings and allow them to be stagnant um, Absolutely. Yeah. And actually a great thing to do is to, if you know, you have emotions you struggle with is like, really like, just like you said, is consciously engage it. So like, for example, sometimes to this day, what I will do is I'll consciously watch scenes from war movies, like seeing Pryor Ryan, Black Hawk Down, Axel Ridge, knowing they'll make me cry. And they do. They're like, I'll tear up, uh, you know, uh, but I do it because there's be- one, there's actually tremendous beauty in experiencing the intensity of that experience and that emotion in that way. But it's an emotion I wrestle with. Like, so if you're struggling with anger, practice anger. It's just like you're training the muscle, like working out, right? If you want to build stronger biceps, you do bicep curls. If you're, if you want to, if you want to build a better relationship to anger, guilt, sadness, fear, pain, engage that emotion and consciously do it, you know? And, and, and I, I will, I will, I will offer a caveat to that is like, 
be careful depending where you are. <laughs> like some people might be like that. You could send into a really dark space if you're not maybe ready. So you kind of want to work your way into it. I'm ready to go to these spaces now. But, uh, but like, just like you said, like, you know, the fear is that we do, preventing us from going into these spaces because they're painful and they're dark. But the more you actually venture into the darkness and navigate and play in the darkness, the more you'll actually experience the light. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I call them, I, I, always say like there are certain things that I found in my life that are like grief switches and often they're physical mm. like I'm feeling anxious and I know there's like a deeper primary emotion behind that so I'll like dance like yeah. really ferociously which is like not even dancing I'm just like flailing myself around <laughs> but it like brings me to that place where I can connect with the emotion and go deeper mm. um I, love that. I think yeah is is helpful and, and finding like I think that's different for everyone I think that's yeah like you know, for you watching these movies or for other people like doing some form of art or um, just sort yeah. of really like realizing what those things are. And then, like you said, like practicing them because inevitably, at least for me, and I'm sure you felt this too, like once you allow yourself to go there and you feel all of that, you come out feeling lighter. Like it's the, the anxiety and the fear that feels so fucking heavy. And then once you move yeah. through it, it's like you're releasing shit over and over and then when you do that more you start to learn like oh okay that's how that goes you know so let me let yeah. me give myself permission to keep doing that because i know what that yeah. feels like afterward yeah um, absolutely because if you don't go there the emotion controls you but if you train in it then you can master that relationship with the emotion and i also so love what you said about triggers right like uh, like music is such a powerful trigger to me. Like yeah. I have songs that will send me into like anger, happiness, play, li like I have songs that'll send me into every experience, you know, like totally. creating triggers just to activate different emotions at will is very, very cool and very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so much. Before we wrap up uh, two questions, one, if you can tell people like where to find you and where to get your book sure. and where to learn more about you. And then secondly, I always ask everyone if they could recommend a book uh, to the audience that was really meaningful to you that either has something to do with this discussion or not, uh, what would that be? Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll start with the book. I mean, I touched on Man's Search for Meaning a lot. So I can say Man's Search for Meaning, but one, maybe one more other than the one I mentioned a lot is um, that ties into this topic a lot is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. Hmm. Very, very cool book. Very powerful book. I learned a lot from that one. And it actually is very... Uh, it's very much in line with this conversation and with Man's Search for Meaning. And then as far as where to find me, Fear of Anna is on Amazon in like in Kindle, Audible, and paperback. All the profits go to really worthy causes and charity we support. So uh, any support, that'd be great. And you can also find me at fearofana.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was awesome. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hello again. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Akshay. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast... The one thing that I can definitely say, it's funny when, when I meet people and they're like, oh, what's your podcast? And they like go and search it on their iPhones or whatever phone they're using. One of the biggest problems is if they don't say like type in a millennials guide and spell millennial correctly that the podcast doesn't come up. And I think that's a result of just the podcast being new and the listenership being, I mean, it's not low, but it's lower, let's say, than other huge ridiculously popular podcast. Um, <clears throat> and one thing that I always heard from podcasts that I listen to is that hitting subscribe or and or rating the podcast or leaving a review actually helps it show up in search results more. And I was always sort of like skeptical about that. But in my experience now of trying to get people to find my podcast on all these apps, I think it's totally true. Um, 
And so the one thing that's really helpful is just to pick up your phone and hit subscribe on whatever app that you listen to. If you listen to it on the iTunes store or in the podcast app on your iPhone, um, you can quickly like leave stars, uh, like a rating and then like write a little review. And then that way it just like seems to the app that it's more popular and more, um, they're more likely to have it show up, even if the all the words aren't there or millennial is spelled wrong, which is a really difficult word to spell. Um, <clears throat> so that would be really helpful. That's all I really want you guys to do. Share it with your friends. Review it, rate it, subscribe, just so more people can find it. Um, <clears throat> today I'm going to play you out with a song called I've Been Here Before. Uh, it's by the Franklin Electric. And um, it definitely ties into today's episode, but uh, addresses sort of a more broader idea as well around cycles and sort of ending up in the same place that you've been before, but maybe with a slightly different perspective or falling into a situation that might seem similar, but is actually different and trying to learn to distinguish between the two. And I feel like I repetitively in my conversation with Akshay was talking about like, how do you know, right? Like, how do you know when you feel something scary? Is it your intuition telling you something's wrong or is it an invitation to go further and to explore it more and to dive deeper? And I think for the most part, the strategy that I'm taking recently, because I feel a bit more of an awareness around what to trust and how to trust myself that I'm much more inclined to sort of more move toward the fear, but I get caught in it a lot. I get caught in like, but what if it's not that? What if I'm wrong? What if I fucked up again? What if I made a mistake again? You know, like this looks really similar from that thing, but maybe this is more nuanced. And even though what I'm saying might sound like that, it's actually coming from a different place. It requires a lot of awareness and, um, I don't always get it right. So this, uh, song, I think, addresses that of like, I've been here before, I think, but have I been here before? And it sounds the same, but maybe it's not the same. And how do I learn to write a new story? And how do I trust that even though I'm assuming someone might do something, maybe they won't. Maybe that's just my own projection. Um, Anyway, just a fascinating concept, and I think a question we can't really answer, and I think the only thing to do is just to, as Akshay said, create stillness for ourselves and give ourselves, like, the grace to know that we're going to fuck it up. And that sometimes our projections will win. Um, and that that's okay. And we're just going to keep moving forward. And I'm sure you guys are really sick of hearing me choke <laughs> on my own words. So I'm going to leave it at that. Enjoy the song. Talk to you next week, hopefully with a much clearer voice. <laughs> Love you guys. I've been here before Gazing at that sunlit riddle that I can't solve Even though I try again Say it again My friends wanna tell me something's different It's the same thing over and over again Can you riddle me that now? Can you tell me, love, that it's time Won't you save me as I pretend 
be over the hill now You know when the part where things get rough and tight Grows in size, would you die inside? Would you let me rise again? And I've been here before And I've been here before And I've been here before I can sympathize with all those kinds of people Tied in, and I've seen it before. Convince myself this time something's different, that I can't put my finger on it. And you tell me you know how, but I can see that you're hopeless and you're trying. You try over and over again. And protect those lonely reasons As you focus on your defense Over and over again I've been here before I've been here before I've been here before I can fool myself into thinking something's missing There's nothing to get But you sympathize and open up your heart Before you fall apart And I've been here before And I've been here before 